It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, joined as always by barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Michael Mulligan. Hey, Michael, how you doing? I'm doing great. Another day in the pandemic, but at least it's sunny outside. Absolutely. We have that going for us for the moment. What is on the docket this week? I'm reading, what is the duty to defend and what is the use or operation with respect to a motor vehicle? Yes, indeed. So this uh, first case uh, involves a 1955 Chevy Chevy Bel Air, Air, Uh a uh, professional uh, hockey goalie, uh, and a series of unfortunate events involving a sledgehammer and a metal plate. Uh Uh, And so how these all come together is this. Uh, Back in 19, uh, or back in 2000, or 2013, uh, a couple, referred to as the Uptons, purchased a 1955 Chevy Bel Air, apparently in good drivable condition. Uh, they purchased insurance for it from ICBC. A few years uh, later, in 2015, uh, there was a problem with the steering mechanism for the 1955 uh, Chevy Bel Air, and so Mr. Upton decided to remove a piece of the steering mechanism, described as a metal plate, uh, which had become bent. Uh, He was trying to straighten the metal plate by banging on it with a sledgehammer, and he, in fact, had some success after hitting it some 20 times. He took a break. (laughs) Mr. Sexsmith, the uh, NHL goalie, uh, came over to visit the Uptons and Uh was watching Mr. Upton uh, trying to straighten this metal plate. Mr. Upton uh, struck the metal plate on three more occasions using the sledgehammer, but on the third occasion, a very unfortunate event occurred, The metal plate flew up in the air after being struck, came down, and hit Mr. Sexsmith in the eye, injuring his eye and face, and ending the uh, professional hockey career of Mr. Sexsmith. Oh, wow. Terrible terrible day back in 2015. Yeah. Now, uh, happily, the Uptons had home insurance from the Wawanisa Mutual Insurance Company. They had a million dollars in coverage. Mm -hmm. They had five million dollars in coverage from ICBC. And so... Mr. Sexsmith, not surprisingly, uh, started uh, an action uh, to try to recover uh, his losses from, uh, I guess, the end of his uh, hockey career being uh, caused by uh, this uh, very unfortunate event. He, in fact, had been drafted by the San Jose Sharks in uh, 2007. He was the 91st draft pick, uh, and he had had a uh, played a number of seasons with some success, including with the Vancouver Giants. So that was his background. Mm. Uh, and so um, on this matter uh, goes uh, until, and the uh, judge, give, judge gives some uh, credit to the experienced lawyer acting for the Uptons, uh, the lawyer for the Uptons realizes that, well, hold on a minute, uh, in addition to uh, potential insurance coverage from the Wawanisa Mutual Insurance Company, uh, the Uptons might have additional coverage available to them under their ICBC policy. Uh, and notifies ICBC that, hey, you may be on the hook for this as well. And that's what brings us to that concept of the duty to defend. And the way that works is that when you have insurance, it will usually include two elements. One would be the duty to indemnify you, right, if you suffer a loss covered by your insurance policy, right? Uh You have, you know, ICBC coverage and you accidentally run into somebody, well, that's why you have insurance, yes. right? Yeah. But there's an additional uh, obligation on insurance companies, and it's referred to as the duty to defend. Hmm. And the way that works is that, uh, let's say there's a uh, complicated uh, 
uh, accident and you wind up getting sued and there's an issue about, you know, were you responsible or how, you know, how much responsibility was yours or, you know, how much loss did the other person suffer? Uh, there may be a court case over that. Um, and an important element of insurance is that insurance companies have a duty to pay for and hire uh, a lawyer to defend you so that that can get properly sorted out. Uh, and so here, what was happening is that ICBC was saying, hey, this isn't our problem. Uh, the person banging, the up, Mr. Upton banging on the piece of metal to try to fix the uh, steering mechanism of the Bel Air, that wasn't part of the use or operation of the motor vehicle. We shouldn't have to pay here, and we shouldn't have to pay to help defend the case. And so the decision that just came out was a decision uh, that was a dispute between the Wawanisa Mutual Insurance Company, they're the ones who had the home insurance policy for the Uptons, mm -hmm. and ICBC, uh, because the Wawanisa Mutual Insurance Company naturally would be interested in having ICBC contribute to the legal costs of this case and potentially contribute to the uh, amount of money that may have to be paid to poor Mr. Sexsmith as a result of his eye injury ending his hockey career, yes. right? Yeah. And ICBC's position was, well, no, no, no. The person in their backyard hitting a metal plate with a sledgehammer, how can that be the use or operation of a motor vehicle? This isn't car insurance. We shouldn't have to pay for that, uh, nor pay for the cost of the lawyer to defend it. And so that's what this case was about. And the judge in this case concluded uh, that the duty to defend is much broader than ultimately the duty to indemnify. Hmm. And the idea there is that when you're being sued, it can be unclear whether at the end of the day, the insurance policy would cover the actual loss. But the way it's to be analyzed is if in the, in, if uh, the particular claim could involve coverage under the insurance policy, mm. and that's a broad concept, yeah. then the insurance company has to pay for the lawyer to defend the claim and find out ultimately, was there a loss? And then was that loss covered by the policy? In which case, then there would be that duty to indemnify or pay for it. And so here, the judge looked at a whole series of cases involving various unfortunate events and the, that concept of the use or operation of a motor vehicle. Yes. Um, and the case law is that the use and operation of a motor vehicle, use or operation, can include accidents that occur in the course of trying to fix the car. So let's imagine your car breaks down on the highway, you know, you're on the side of the highway trying to, you know, jack it up and change the tire or something, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. That remains the use or operation of the motor vehicle, right? If the car falls off the jack and rolls into the highway and hits somebody, well, you're covered. What if it right? hits you? That's a good question. Yeah, I that was going to say. That would be a separate issue. Okay. Um, I mean, because insurance, you can have insurance which would cover third-party claims. That would be, you know, my car rolls into yours and wrecks your car. Yeah. You can also purchase, uh, they would call it, I think ICBC calls it comprehensive coverage to deal with things that don't involve your liability to somebody else, but things that might just sort of befall you or things you might do. Like, mm. for example, um, or I think they call that collision. Okay. Like, for example, you can choose to buy, you're not required to buy, but you can choose to buy insurance that would cover you if, you know, you're not paying attention and, you know, back into a pole in a parking lot or something. Yes. Well, it's no one else's fault but yours. Um, and you can choose to buy that insurance, but it's not required. Basically, if you want to take your chances with damaging your own car, well, 
that's up to you. What we want to make sure is that there's coverage for other people in case you do something careless and hurt them, right? That's mm. not something which you'd be able to choose not to have. Yeah. Um, and so the starting point is that if you're doing something to fix your car, right, that is included in that concept of use or operation. Uh, and because that's fairly broad, uh, and one of the critical elements being there has to be some intention to actually you know, use the car again as a car, like putting a tire on it so you could drive it down the road or, you know, checking the oil or doing something on it. It wouldn't cover you if you, for example, you know, turned your, you know, burned out Camaro into a planter in your front yard. That's no longer the use or operation of a motor vehicle. Now it's a, you know, planter in your front yard. Mm. So because that concept of the duty to defend is a broad one, uh, the judge concluded that, Yes, indeed, it might ultimately be something that ICBC would be responsible to pay for. By all accounts, the 1955 Chevy Bel Air was in good condition. And other than sorting out the steering problem, uh, you know, the Uptons plan to continue to use it as a car. And so the judge concluded that the use or operation uh, does include those uh, efforts to repair the vehicle in the backyard and may well include that unfortunate event of the piece of metal flying up and hitting the goaltender in the eye. And so the result of this um, is that ICBC will be required to pay half the cost, along with the Wawanisa Mutual Insurance Company, of the lawyer to defend the case for the Uptons. And then, depending on what the judge finds in terms of uh, liability and how that occurred, ICBC and the Wawanisa Mutual Insurance Company may need to share the cost uh, of the uh, ultimately the uh, award, if there is one. And that may be very important, not only for Mr. Sexsmith, the unfortunate goaltender, but also for the Uptons. Because, of course, uh, somebody who may have had a uh, lucrative career as an NHL goalie um, could have suffered quite a substantial loss as a result of their eye being injured. Yes. So the fact that there's a, a larger amount of coverage under the ICBC policy may, at the end of the day, be quite important uh, for both of them. So there it is. The, All right. Uh, unfortunate goaltender and the 1955 Shelby Bel Air. All right. Let's take our first break. Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers continues right after this. Back to Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, in the course of your duties as defense counsel, there is little doubt in my mind that you have come across any number of different situations that look absolutely awful in terms of what a person may have done. And yet, sometimes circumstances can combine with one another to make a person look guilty when, in fact, they're not. Like, for example, what happens if, I don't know, you rent a car, you drive it across the border, and in the course of crime, Crossing the border, it is revealed that there's a large amount of, say, drugs in the car. And you didn't put them there. You didn't know. Uh, how do the courts deal with something like that? Well, I guess it depends who you hire as a lawyer. No, <laughs> good, good answer. The, good answer. Uh, yeah. the, uh, that's not too far off of what this uh, case involved uh, just last week. This was a uh, fellow who was found uh, driving uh, across the border from the U.S. to Canada uh, in a courtesy car uh, from a auto body shop. And in the trunk of the car was discovered a suitcase in which there was 13 kilograms of heroin. That's wow. quite a bit of heroin. Wow. Uh, interestingly, the evidence came out that this was agreed upon at the time uh, that this occurred, 2017. I guess that's when people uh, were still able to drive across the border, of course. Yes. Uh, heroin apparently was going for, uh, in California at least, 
$46,000 a kilogram Canadian, uh-huh. uh, but in the lower mainland was worth $80,000 a kilogram. So Arbitrage. You might, imagine, you might imagine there'd be a pretty powerful incentive on the part of a number of people uh, not concerned with the impact of heroin uh, to try to get that uh, amount across the border. Yes. The calculation was that would produce a profit of some $442,000. Wow. So a suspicious circumstance for this fellow. Um, and the issue is really this. Well, there are a couple of ways to look at it. First of all, he was charged with trafficking and possession, or sorry, importation, and then possession for the purpose of trafficking. Now, both of those require proof that the person had knowledge of those things, right? You're, you're only guilty of uh, being in possession of something if you have knowledge that you're in possession of the thing, right? Mm. If I come up and flip something into your back pocket you don't know about that's illegal, you're not guilty unless you're aware <laughs> that that's there, right? Mm. And so the Crown needs to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, not just that there were drugs in the trunk of the car this fellow was driving, but they need to prove that he knew there were drugs in the trunk of the car that he was driving across the border. And that's where the challenge arose here. Um, that was me. They analyzed the, the uh, drugs and the plastic packaging, and they found no fingerprints that matched the driver of the car. Hmm. Uh, they also analyzed uh, some gloves in the possession of the accused. There was no residue of drugs found uh, on the gloves or on the accused, right? So you've just got drugs in the trunk, in a suitcase in the trunk of the car. Yes. Um, interestingly, in this case, the man chose to testify and explain uh, what happened and to say to the judge, I did not know that there were drugs in the trunk of my car. Uh, and the explanation that he provided uh, was that uh, he was a truck driver. And he says that an associate of his had uh, called him and asked him to come and help uh, as a result of a uh, breakdown on the U.S. side of the uh, border. So he said, well, I got some tools together and drove down there and uh, met this person in a uh, rest stop on the U.S. side. And I uh, engaged in changing a broken hose uh, uh, in the person's truck so they would be able to carry on. And um, he says, well, it's possible somebody put this in the trunk of the car while I was engaged in uh, fixing uh, the broken truck at the truck stop. He says, I just didn't know those things were there. Mm. Now, the way that gets analyzed, and this is, I think, an important thing to know as well, is, of course, in a criminal case, the Crown is to prove that you committed the offense beyond all reasonable doubt. And so how is a judge to approach it when they have a person who testifies and says, I didn't know this was there. I'm innocent, right? The way that works is the judge needs to ask themselves, first of all, do I believe the person when they tell me I did not know the drugs were in the trunk of the car? If they believe them, obviously that's the end of the matter, right? Here, the judge says, I don't necessarily believe him when he's saying that. There's suspicious circumstances here. But the judge has to then move on and ask themselves, might the person be telling the truth? Which is a different thing from, do I believe them? Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Uh, and the judge here was prepared to go that far and say, look, this man might be telling the truth when he says that he didn't know the drugs were there. There's some suspicious circumstances. I don't necessarily believe him, but I can't reject his evidence. And so on that basis, uh, the judge wound up acquitting him. Hmm. Um, and I should say, even if a judge doesn't get that far and says, look, I utterly reject the person's evidence, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that they're guilty. The judge would at that point have to go on to analyze, are they satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt on the basis of whatever evidence they do accept? And so 
that's how the case was analyzed. And I guess the uh, takeaway is keep an open mind and, and bear in mind that the uh, Crown needs to prove these things beyond all reasonable doubt. Uh, and even though the circumstances look suspicious, uh, this fellow's uh, uh, explanation and the lack of uh, any forensic evidence which would connect him to the drugs uh, was uh, sufficient to uh, raise a reasonable doubt. And uh, so he won't be uh, spending a very long time in prison, which would have been the alternative outcome here. Wow. Uh, during our last conversation, Michael, we touched upon the matter of fraud and the many forms that it can take these days, especially during COVID-19. I'm reading here a case of telephone fraud, $90,000 lost, and was it re- was it retrieved? This it was a rare occasion where, yes, it was retrieved, but I should say uh, all of these things are stories worth listening to, so you don't wind up uh, the victim of one of these things. Yes. This particular fraud uh, involved a... Uh, retired woman uh, who had uh, worked as a home care worker uh, and lived in Canada for about 30 years. She had a life savings of some $90,000. Fraud uh, artists, telephone fraud artists, uh, contacted her um, and uh, told her that she was being uh, investigated for financial crimes in China. She was originally from China, although she lived in Canada for some 30 years, Mm -hmm. uh, and managed to eventually persuade her Uh, that she needed to uh, provide this uh, money to a third party uh, in order to uh, allow the Chinese authorities to be satisfied of her innocence. It sounds uh, far-fetched, but she agreed to do that. Mm. And so she wound up getting uh, a uh, bank draft uh, payable to another person the fraudsters had engaged in the amount of $90,000. That person went and deposited the money into a CIBC bank account Uh, but gave, I guess, some suspicious answers about where the money came from and what it was to be used for that were Hmm. untrue. Hmm. Uh, The victim then went to a, or the the intermediary victim, this person who the first person, the retired person had given the money to, went and, pursuant to the instructions of the fraudsters, uh, went to a currency um, transfer, wire transfer company, a small one, uh, and had them, Uh, on the strength of a bank draft, transfer the money to a bank in China, presumably to the actual fraud artists. The money went to China, uh, but unbeknownst to either of the two intermediary victims or, at that time, the small wire transfer company, CIBC had realized this looks like an unlawful activity and froze the money in the account. So the fraudsters got their money, The person who was out money uh, was the small wire transfer company, right? Mm -hmm. They had sent the money to China on the strength of the bank draft from CIBC. CIBC froze the account. And so that's where this litigation came about. Mm -hmm. The retired person who had uh, been swindled into giving the $90,000 to the other (laughs) victim um, was trying to get the money out of CIBC saying, hey, that's my money. The small wire transfer company's position was, hey, that's not fair. We sent this money to China. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's our money. Yeah. Why should we be out the money? Um, now, there are a couple of other unfortunate events. The uh, person who owned the wire transfer company tried to persuade the victim to lie about the source of the money to get it released from CIBC. Not a good idea. That wasn't too, not good. Uh, and uh, also, it would appear the second victim was told some lies about the source of the money, which is what caused CIBC to freeze it. Yeah. 
here, ultimately, at the end of the day, the judge has ordered that the money frozen in the CIBC bank account go back to the uh, poor retired woman who was uh, out the $90,000. And the person who's going to be left, no doubt, holding the bag is going to be this um, small wire transfer uh, company. And so uh, good luck for the, the small wire transfer company ever trying to recover anything from the Chinese uh, fraud artists. Uh, but I, I suppose if there's any happy uh, ending here, uh, it's at least that the poor retired woman who was swindled out of her life savings uh, is going to get that back. Uh, but still a uh, unfortunate uh, series of events, both for her and no doubt all the stress that produced and for this uh, sole one-person owner um, of the small wire transfer company. So uh, really dastardly activity, uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, take uh, money from a uh, uh, retired person uh, in that way. But this would be, I suppose, one of the rare cases where at least that person is going to be able to uh, get back uh, what appeared to have been irreparably lost, uh, thanks to, I suppose, some diligence on the part of CIBC uh, when this person showed up with the $90,000 bank draft and some suspicious explanations for where the money was going and where it came from. Uh, Good on them for uh, being alert enough to uh, stop that. Uh, And uh, so at least uh, there was some possibility of uh, recovery for the uh, original victim. Legally speaking here on CFAX 1070 during the second half of our second hour every Thursday on the program. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, a pleasure as always. Thank you for your time. Always always a pleasure. Stay safe. All right. Talk to you next week. Bye now.